In this episode, we're back answering some of your questions. We'll be covering how to maximize borrowing on a low income, what agents mean when they say expressions of interest, borrowing from overseas, the research needed when buying your first investment property, dealing with best and final offers in a hot market, and what due diligence do buyers agents do that regular buyers don't. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as Download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? The elephant in the room.com.au. All right, our first question is from Nick. I'm 26 years old and already have one investment property and currently looking for my second. As a landscaper that is only on a 65K a year job, and he loves his job, how would he be able to increase his maximum loan from the bank? I'm sort of changing the context as I'm right, the perspective as I'm reading the question. Down deposit isn't a problem with me. I'm a bit over 110K in the bank ready to go. My God, with my wage being so low and me only having my wage as a source of income, what would the next steps be getting investment number three, boy, oh boy, he's only talking about number two, and going into the future? What do you say to that, Chris? So I've spoken about this a few times on the podcast before that lending is nowhere near as easy for investors as it was pre the last boom. So in that sort of 2012 to 2015 period when investing was the sort of thing to do, it was a massive part of the property market and that's what caused APRA to step in and put limits and make interest only loans really tough. And the reason is, is that that point in time you could leverage, if you knew what you were doing, you knew you could play it across different bank calculators over 10 times income, you know, maybe even 12, like, you know, and sometimes you could fix loans and do all these tricky things. And it was um, much easier then also when you added the rental income in plus your income to build a massive portfolio on a small income. Now that doesn't really exist anymore. That APRA went into the banks, they looked at how they're, they're assessing, uh, you know, loan applications and they said, oh, I'm going to say, that's not right. That's a bit of a gap. And, and bit by bit in that 2015 period, banks were releasing new servicing calculators because APRA was on their back and saying, no, you can't do that anymore. Now, it's probably around six to seven times income, maybe eight times income if you get a bit tricky, but you know, you're not going to be able to get 10 or 12 times income like you could have, say, five years ago. So the thing that drives how much money you can borrow does nothing really to do about how much deposit you've got. It does a little bit, but ultimately comes down the income you've got plus the rental income on on a property. So, you know, the big challenge is, is, Nick, and it's not just you, it's everyone who's single out there really. It's much harder to borrow a significant amount of money on one income versus two income because a bank wants to be a little bit more conservative in case you lose your job. You know, once you get a second income in, you can potentially have lower living expenses because you can share and you can potentially borrow more money. So that's the first thing, Nick. The second idea is I'm not saying this is unique, but we have got seen lots of clients over the year in certain jobs that maybe attract a cash sort of payment rather than putting it on the books. You know, 
ultimately, if you are running that type of business, not saying you are at all, but the people who are potentially doing that, they're really shooting themselves in the foot when they go to a bank to borrow money, you know, because on paper they're earning, say, 60, but in the reality is they're getting 40, 50 grand a year cash basically behind the scenes. And so if you are in that position, you've got to really think, well, is paying a little bit of tax on my income better then, uh, and for, you know, lots of other reasons, but is paying that tax going to give me bigger borrowing capacity, which means I can invest more money, which is going to offset the tax that I would have paid anyway and do things legally. And so ultimately, I think that's what a lot of people doing cash are shooting themselves in the foot. One little idea, Nick, you've told you're 26 years old. A lot of 26-year-olds are still living at home with mum and dad. If you're not, that could be an option for you because that would lower your living expenses and reduce your rent. And so you can generally borrow a lot more money when you're living at home because you're rent-free and you can use the rental income on an investment property. And so that is one idea for you. You know, there's potentially ways to go to some lenders like non-banks and things like that. But you just got to be aware of sometimes the risks in terms of the cost of capital because you could pay an outrageous interest rate straight away. You know, you could pay potentially borrow at 50, 60% LVR and pay 7% interest rates and get a property that's nothing to do with normal lending. But you could get stuck on a ridiculously high interest rate, which basically defeats the whole purpose of investing because that would just hamstring your investment. The other sort of option there is a non-bank, which is like a normal bank, which may be, say, 4%, so much lower. But with non-banks, you just always have a risk that their rates could rise. They're a higher risk than, say, a big retail bank like a Big Four or Macquarie or Suncorp or ING, those type of banks. So that's really it. You know, the reality is if you want to build a portfolio, you've got to basically increase your income. You know, you can't just have a small income and leverage into a big portfolio. Those days are gone. So I'd really work on your income, Nick. Consider leaving at home, maybe the partner. I'd also, you know, I think there's a bit of a mindset shift that I'll probably personally make. I think rather than trying to say I've got three properties and, you know, feel like you're achieving because you've got three properties, I'd shift your focus and saying, look, why don't I just get one quality property? If I've only got limited borrowing capacity, hence, you know, which we all have based on income, do I really want to spread that across three properties that are going to diminish the quality and potentially diminish my returns rather than just buying one property and potentially getting one property growing tax-free, like a home that you could live in or use something called the six-year rule? So, I think that's a bit of a, a challenge there as well. So hopefully that sort of gives you a good basis, Nick. Shift the mindset, see if you can maximize it, you know, consider maybe a future partner, how that might impact your property decision and yeah, and keep growing your income. I was wondering about a second job. So if you decided to work on Saturdays, will that help? It's a good point. So, I mean, you, you know, you could go and do some casual work on the side, but you're going to want to get at least three, six months of that if it's different to what he does. But if it's, you know, a bit of Saturday work, I'd get it on the books, you know, mm. you know, rather than just getting a bit of cash money on the side. You know, we know, we all know what happens out there, but get it on the books, get it paid, ideally get it paid through your employer. Otherwise, if it's a new job, it could just, you might need three, six months to sort of get that on the books. So, While you were talking there, Chris, I had a bit of an alarm bell go off in my head because I can understand and I've seen a lot of property plans put together by, you know, quasi-spruikers, advisors, a lot of people with different sort of different, you know, names on their business cards. And quite often there is a property or two in a portfolio plan that is for cash flow. And 
I could hear the danger signs here, you know, hear the danger signs, see the danger signs, because, of course, if income is the problem, that leads directly down the path of this, oh, so you need to buy a property for cash flow so that you can increase your income and therefore you can borrow more for the next property. And so that's commonly held wisdom, and I use, I put rabbit's ears around the word wisdom, and on paper it makes sense, except that fast forward 10, 20 years, it doesn't make sense at all because those assets, shall we call them, or properties that provide cash flow are usually like 99.9% of the time really poor assets you don't want to own. They will fundamentally hamstring you in one way or another. And that's a danger here when you're trying to accumulate a lot of property. So I would absolutely go with your, your advice there, Chris, to really change the focus to one or maybe two Re- the best possible quality properties that you can afford to buy. And, you know, and he's already got one investment property. I hope it's a good one, you know, and, and you know, look at building up that deposit, you know, down the track you'll hopefully maybe partner up if you want to and you'll hopefully yeah. maybe if you want to have kids and all that sort of stuff, your requirements will change and that will put you in a better position to actually buy a home that has got those tax benefits, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because the danger is the quantity, not quality. So it's admirable that at 26 you, you're so focused on your future wealth or current wealth even. It's really admirable, but just slow down a bit and focus on the quality, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's your net wealth in that property that, you know, the number, because ultimately, you know, these properties you may keep longer term, Nick, but unless your income dramatically increases or your partner that you potentially meet down the line has a lot of income, you may not be able to afford it if you want to buy a home to live in. And and people do, you know, values shift. The reason I didn't think about that question you said, Veronica, around buying a property with a higher rent is it just doesn't come into my mindset, into my psyche because 100% that's not something that you should look to consider. It is something that makes sense. You're right because if you say look at two properties and let's say they're around 500,000 and one can get $400 a week rent and one can get $600 a week rent. Now, a lot of people would say I'd go for the $600 a week rent one, no problems, but you know, that only tells you one side of the story. It doesn't tell you the quality of the asset longer term and what the rent's going to be longer term. The $400 a week rent could rise to 450 to 500 to 600 to 700 but the $600 a week rent right, may never rise. It may actually fall because it's a, a drop in sort of demand or an increase in supply. And so current rent, you've got to be really careful because it's not guaranteed long term and it also can will change long term, either goes up, down, sideways. But even if we look at those numbers, that extra $200 a week rent, which sounds like a lot of money, over a year, that's $10,000 a year. Now, what the bank will do will haircut that rent and they'll say, well, yeah, it's an extra $10,000 a year of income, but we know that you might have vacancy. We know you've got costs to run that property. So we're only going to consider 80% of it. Some banks will be, say, 75, but let's say 80. So they'll add $8,000 onto your income. But that eight thousand dollars in income could probably only borrow you another fifty, maybe sixty thousand dollars in terms of the actual borrowing capacity. By paying a higher yield property, it's not going to add in a huge amount of borrowing capacity. Now that might seem a lot to Nick because he can buy something a little bit more expensive, but ultimately if that is shooting yourself in the foot because you're not buying as quality asset that's going to grow for you longer term. Don't fall for that sort of temptation of just trying to get positive cash flow, high yield. So you can borrow more, but if it's not better quality, you're just accumulating quantity really. Yeah. 
Our second question is from Pam. She says she loves the podcast, so thank you very much. She's got a question <laughs> for each of us, right? For me, I'll, how about, I'll go for mine first. How's that? I occasionally see a property being listed as expressions of interest. How is it different to a private treaty sale or auction and what kind of properties are best suited for it? Do you know the expressions of interest really is just a private treaty without a price? And I'm even finding in Sydney that even with private treaty, they'll put a guide on it rather than an asking price. So, and this is the thing that in property, the agents will basically follow a path that seems to be, I guess it's it's area specific. So there will be certain areas where you'll find nearly everything's offered expressions of interest. And normally there's a guide. So it's like a, an auction where they deal with pre-auction offers, not actually an auction. So it normally is when you've got property that they may not find it easy to price that they may be thinking, okay, well, it's going to be in a range. So in, I guess there's a basic principle with property, if it's homogenous, i.e. it's the property stock is all very much same, same. So if you go out to a new subdivision, the houses are, you know, just variations on a theme, no major differences between one and another, then that's what we call homogenous stock or an apartment building where they're all two bedroom, two bathroom, one car space with a little balcony. It's all same, same, just whatever floor you're on homogenous. Um, it's one of the things that we go for, we talk about, it's so valuable is scarcity. Scarce, homogenous property and scarcity, two different things. Scarcity is where you've got properties that have individual features that make them stand out and more desirable. So when you've got scarcity, typically that's when you put something like expressions of interest. And it might be it might be a 30-year-old subdivision where the houses are all different now because they were on bigger blocks and some have been extended and some haven't. And there's more variety in the type of building in the first place. So you will find scarcity comes in different packages, I guess, or different brands. So the expression of interest is really just a way, it's like a hybrid. It's not quite an auction, but they think that they're going to get more than one interested party. And so that's why they put that out there. The other reason that somebody might use expressions of interest is if they are not game (laughs) to put the price on. And that is where the owner really wants way too much. So you'll often see this sometimes with price guides as well with auction campaigns is that if the agent is not putting a guide on it, at all, unless you're in Queensland where they're not allowed to. But if the agent is not putting a guide, then that could mean, not always, but could mean that the owner's expectations really are a lot higher than what the agent would like. And so the agent isn't game to put a guide on it, to publish a guide that is reflective of the owner's expectations. So there's a lot in the pricing of a property and trying to understand actually what circumstances are leading to this one being advertised in a certain way. So just as a general rule of thumb, certain areas, if you find that they're all expressions of interest, well, that's just the way that those agents operate. And if it's one property sticking out as expressions of interest, we've well, got to be thinking, well, there's some circumstances around that one that lend the agent to not really want to put a price on it. Yeah. And I've seen it also with a lot of the upper end where you're right, it's not just scarcity, but it's also hard to value because mm. it could be, you know, 10 or 12 or 15 mil. And or it's a very, very unique property that they know it's going to take a long time to potentially sell and so they don't want to put the pressure on a short auction campaign. Is that what you've seen as well? Yeah, actually, that's true. And there are those really unique properties absolutely in that are, you know, the one of a kind. That sort of prop that that is a, a classic that's probably the original and I have, I've been talking about the way it's used in sort of commonly these days, but that's probably the original intention of a uh, expressions of interest campaign. 
Yeah. I've also seen a date on them as well where, you know, that's almost like a a quasi auction, like you mentioned before, where they're sort of saying, look, it's pressing interest before the 1st of July. And then all of a sudden it goes past that date, right? And um, it's still on the market and it's now expression of interest. Well, they're trying to create urgency without actually having an auction campaign. So it doesn't always work. Yeah. And I think, you know, it was a client trying to buy something in, um, you know, Albury actually, I'll say where it is, but that was an expression of interest on the weekend. And you know, you also got to think, well, is the agent sort of just trying it on, you know, because, you know, waiting to hear what buyers are willing to sort of throw around because, mm. you know, sometimes there are buyers out there, uh, not sometimes, but always buyers out there that, you know, maybe aren't up to speed 100% on the market and what something's worth and, you know, and then to be desperate. And sometimes, you know, they're probably paying overs for properties, et cetera. So, I kind of always worry about that a little bit as well. Is um, you know, what do you, you know, what do you, what is he selling it for? I don't know. What do you think you, you're going to pay for it? Sort of uh, flipping it back on the, the uninformed buyer. So <laughs> yeah. uh, that's hopefully answers your question there, Pam. And thanks for the uh, lovely comment. Well, it's a bit of smoke and mirrors, I guess. The yeah. the expressions of interest and it is, you know, not completely transparent and so therefore it requires a buyer to ask questions you know why is this expressions of interest what happens if you don't get the offer that is suitable for the vendor by the deadline like just start asking those questions and Mm. and try to get a sense of the the backstory your question for you chris from pam is could you please talk about the borrowing options overseas australians might have especially if they're asset rich and income poor another another income question but Let's just sort of focus on the overseas side of things um, because there are additional uh, requirements, aren't there, and it's harder to borrow. Oh, it definitely is harder. Like what I've mentioned earlier in the podcast around it was easier in 2015. Like uh, expat sort of foreign sort of investors and even foreign uh, Aussies living overseas wanting to buy future homes, I guess, uh, was much easier back then. We had lots of clients in places like Dubai and Singapore, London, who could leverage their you know, incomes overseas, also lower tax rates overseas and leverage just like they would if they lived here and potentially even more. It was like a real opportunity if you were living overseas earning a good income to buy property in Australia. That all got was, you know, massive, you know, easy sort of win, I guess, for the government and for APRA to say, look, you know, the property market's going out of control. What's causing that? And there was a story at the time that a lot of what's pushing prices up are expats and foreign investments, you know, and people were blaming lots of different nationalities. But since then, expat lending hasn't really come back anywhere near like it was. And uh, it's much, much tougher now. And a lot of banks, A, don't want to do it, so they just won't allow you. A lot of banks will put so many haircuts on it that if you're not earning a ridiculous income, you can't really buy anything meaningful here. Now, there are a few lenders that will still lend on after-tax money and they will, won't haircut your income as much, but they're you know, a real minority and we sometimes have to use them. But, you know, the big players, the big four will generally do it, but they'll haircut you so much that even if you're earning a ridiculous income, you could probably only borrow, say, three, four times income, which here you could borrow, say, six times. So you have to have a ridiculous income. You also, one of the issues over there is that usually you're paying a high rent because, you know, a lot of these places, Singapore, Hong Kong, you know, London have very high rents. And so that's another issue where, even if you've got a great income, you may have very high expenditure. And if a bank looks at your spending and your rent, it really smashes you. So expat lending is tough unless you're really massively income rich. You do need to be asset rich because a lot of banks, especially, will want at least a 20% deposit 
And they were wanting a 30%, but they've seemed to have increased their risk a little bit and they're willing to do it with a 20% deposit now. So if you're earning a good income overseas and you've got a 20% deposit, it's possible, but there's just a very few number of banks and you want to get pre-approved because you've only got a small number of options. If something goes wrong, there's not many plan Bs, Cs and Ds. And so if you're an Aussie overseas wanting to do expat, get yourself pre-approved, get a plan B lined up straight away and just be very careful and close to the lending because it can easily go wrong. One of the other things you do definitely want to check is just the stamp duty and land tax. It's very state-based. It's always shifting around sort of the premium and, you know, whether you're Aussie and you're going to buy it with a partner who's maybe another nationality or how long you've been overseas, et cetera. So just be careful that you don't get burnt on additional stamp duty or, or land tax. Yeah, I think the stamp duty in particular can catch people unawares because there are certainly some jurisdictions that put a it's an, a, a non-resident duty basically and, and that does change time to time as well. So, yeah, definitely check that out. We got a question from Daniel. It's quite a long question. There's a lot of lot of points to this question. He's a big fan. Thanks, Daniel. A long time listener. He's 22. God love him. And looking to buy his first investment property. Recently graduated from civil en- uh, civil engineering degree, and he's now working full time in that chosen his chosen field of study. And in the process of getting his finance pre approved, so he's not mucking around, is he? So basically, wanted to you know go through the process of undertaking research prior to the purchase of an investment property. And this is an interesting one because he's got sort of four questions here. One, various online platforms available to the public to research part and future wages growth in numerous suburbs around Australia. Now, we had a conversation only last week with Jeremy Shepherd about uh, wages growth. And, and so he's using data to say that's not really a determinant for capital growth or an investor grade locations. I guess I'm, my jury's still out on that as to whether that is or isn't true, because I guess what he's saying is that by measuring the wages of the people in the area, you should be measuring the wages of the people buying in the area. I still think you've got to look at the wages of people in the area yep. in which you're looking at buying, because fundamentally owner occupiers are what drive capital growth and you want lots of owner occupiers in the area. You know, there's that 70-30 rule. The sort of the ideal that 70% of properties are owner-occupied. Look, we can dig into that too, and I'm not going to dig into that right now. So, Chris, have you got any suggestions in terms of researching past and future wages growth? I do know that there's information on the Suburb Trends website that you can look into that, and there are quite a lot of websites around. What are you using? I think it's quite hard to find because you've got to think about it. What are all the people in the area and how to – Who's going to really have access to all that information? And census is probably the best thing, but it's every five years and are people honest or not? And And it's certainly not reflecting future growth. I don't think you can. Yeah, I was reading an article last year about, you know, the incomes in certain suburbs and things like that. And so, you know, there's things out there. I I absolutely think that what matters is the people buying in the suburb. If you've got 100 properties in a suburb, 5% of those roughly transact a year, so that's five properties. If those five properties are selling to people who have got growing incomes and are higher incomes than the suburb, then that's a really good sort of analysis. Now, how do you find that out? Well, you can probably find out in terms of you know, roughly what they're bidding, you know, how they're pushing up the, the suburb. And so wage growth will hopefully happen, but really what the wage growth that you want to see is a massive increase in terms of the demographic, and that's that gentrification thing. And that's what really pushes prices up because 
they've got bigger borrowing capacities. You know, higher income leads to higher borrowing capacity and then that higher borrowing capacity leads into bigger bids and then that leads into bigger prices. So wage growth is a really important part, I think. But what Jeremy sort of said is that I think you do need to do it on the buyers that are buying in the suburb now. You know, if you've got a 60 or 80-year-old in a suburb that's in the pension but they're living in a three $4 million house, well, their wage doesn't really matter. Ideally, or you, and that's actually a good thing because if they're going to stay in that house for another 20 years, that means that that property is never going to hit the market for another 20 years, you know? And so having a lot of people in a suburb that are just wanting to stay in the property and are unlikely to sell and maybe on a low income, then that's fine. So that doesn't affect the prices of properties in that suburb. Your second question is about research methods and frameworks that we adopt or prefer. It's funny, I ran a stepping stone strategy workshop with Megan recently and we will be putting together a tutorial on Homebuyer Academy for people to purchase if they are interested. And one of the elements of a stepping stone strategy. And that is basically where you buy your first home. You know, it's not going to be a dream home. You need to buy with a sort of a roughly a five plus or minus year timeframe because you're wanting to leverage and leapfrog up the property ladder, right? So you've got to be very, very careful what you buy as your first home, regardless of whether you're consciously adopting this this strategy or not. But you certainly got to be looking for capital growth. You've got to be looking for it in that sort of short term. And so, you know, nothing beats local knowledge, right? Nothing. But how do you then develop local knowledge, you know, in 300 SA3 regions across the country, for instance? So you you can't. And with the stepping stone strategy also that you have to live in the property because there's otherwise you're giving away all your gains in tax when you sell it. So, So it's slightly different to buying your first investment property, but the principle's the same in terms of looking for a good area in which to invest, right? And so you've got to start top down. You start regional. You start sort of trying to get an understanding of regional areas. And that it is all about demographics because it's understanding really, is there a migration of people to this area? Are they going to stay there? Are they only going there because because of work and there's no other, there's no lifestyle to hold them there? I mean, there, there's all these sorts of things that you need to understand in a regional level. Then you sort of get down to the next level at suburb level. So it's sort of understanding the drivers and local dynamics in, in individual suburbs. And then it gets down to the streets within those suburbs. And then it gets down to the side of the street and then the actual property itself that is in high demand with local buyers or with the buyers that typically want to be in that area. And so you you are looking at things like gentrification, you look at aspirational buyers, you're looking at the ripple effect, you're looking at all of those sorts of concepts whilst you're doing this drill down. But you do have to start bigger and start narrowing it down. So when we start bigger, and that's why I sort of do refer to the Suburb Trends, that's Kent Lardner's website, because there is a lot of information in there that starts you off in this process of, you know, funneling down from macro down to micro. But until you're at micro, you really don't know enough to make a good decision. Yeah, I think the challenge is that you're trying to probably bring in your engineering degree here, Daniel, (laughs) into property investing, right? And so you're saying, look, I can systemize and figure out this science and figure out how to play the property market. And I'd argue it's not that simple because ultimately property could have all those things that could, you know, good wages, growth, et cetera, but it's not, that's part science. The other thing is the part sort of the art to it, right? And that's human behavior, how cities will grow, demographics, buyer preferences, styles of property, all these sort of things. And this is, I think, the, I, I think you should argue even bigger to understand rather than those sort of other things because, you know, and I think the other problem is when you look at sort of let's get some research, you're also, I think, also asking to be sold to. 
because a lot of property people will create research ultimately to push a story, whether it's to push regional investing, whether it's to push off the plan and with depreciation schedules or whether it's to push something. And the problem is a lot of that research is very conveniently supporting their idea and it's I, I believe it's also missing out a lot of the simpler things which is just getting the right strategy for you you know when you say the the question here is in terms of research methods i think every suburb has a different price point where you may want to enter or you you know consider it or you just haven't got enough money to enter that area or that city or town and what you want to be doing is definitely getting into the pockets where there's scarcity and pockets that are aspirational or you know where higher income couples families or people with money are wanting to buy within that city and if you can't get into i believe into those parts of that location then i think you've got to go to a different location and so when you've figured out your budget daniel but it's also your budget today but what might your budget be in a few years time you said here that i'm just going to move into full-time work starting out well your income is probably pretty low. And, you know, if you come back in three or four years' time, your income is probably going to grow a lot because you've, you know, you've done this study, but you have to start somewhere. And so you just got to be careful that you don't just go and use all your capacity on a low income, which won't be that much, to buy a property. So you've got an investment property and then you get a pay rise and then you can borrow a little bit more money. And so then you go and buy another little property when you potentially should have just knuckled down, saved hard, increased your income and then got a quality asset rather than having two or three really cheap ones. And so I would also argue that's a, a thing to be thinking about here, Daniel. I totally agree. I, You know, it's sort of weird for property people to say, you know why you should think of investing outside property. The ticking the box of I've got my first property is is a bit hollow it, when down the track you realise you stuffed up. <laughs> and you stuffed up because you jumped in too quickly. And I know when prices are rising, that's hard to understand. You go, but, but prices are rising. I'm just going to get priced out of it. But, you know, if you're on a good career trajectory, and we spoke earlier in this episode about how important income is for borrowing. And so whilst you're building up your, you know, your income and you, you're building up your experience in your, in your career, et cetera, et cetera, there are other ways of investing. And I'd be looking at doing that whilst you're learning about property, absolutely. But I, I'd be learning about, you know, look at Owen Raskovich's, you know, podcast, for instance, and, and start learning about ETFs, start learning about lots of other ways that you can build wealth without actually taking ridiculous risk because that's what people are, are failing to understand with property is how risky it is. It feels like a an achievement to buy your first investment property or let's say first investment property, but is it an achievement if it's actually not a good asset? So that's the caution there. But in terms of you, your third part of this question is most important research indicators for an investment grade suburb. So wages, employment, population growth. And Chris is sort of talking there about basically looking for blue chip suburbs. And unfortunately, and I've said this many times before, I think property investment is a rich man's game or rich person's game, right? And the reason I say that is because obviously as prices rise across this country, quality assets are becoming more and more expensive. You can still buy cheaper assets. They're not quality. 
necessarily, right? So you choose a location that has got a lot of things going for it. You need to have lots of different diverse employment. There's no point buying in a mining town with only one employer, one industry, right? Or even in a tourism area where you've got one employer, one industry. You know, buying in an area because it's got a new hospital or new university, even then I just go, well, that's not enough. I want to know there's multi-layered diversity of industry, diversity of employment, a lot of supporting services. And it's, it's a very nice enmeshed web, (laughs) economic web there that is all interdependent as opposed to dependent on one source of uh, income for the area. So you've got to look at that complexity and and that established. And they don't have to be all capital cities, of course. Some of the major regional centres have got that. And so then it's understanding, well, where are the most desirable areas of those regional centres or in those cities. And so, you know, applying that sort of logic to Sydney, and this is one of the reasons why we, in, in Good Deeds, that that my sort of main business is that we, we focus on the 10K radius of the CBD because in good markets and bad, I have seen demand for quality properties go, un- it doesn't waver. There's always demand for quality property in those areas. Now, I'm not saying, say, Balmain is where my office is. Not every street in Balmain fits the criteria, you know, and not every property in the good streets fits that criteria. You have to get so micro when you understand that. But so so fundamentally looking at the area, it's got to have that complex um, in, you know, interconnected employment, uh, sorry, ec- economic um factors so that one lever gets pulled, the whole thing doesn't fall over. Yeah, absolutely. I think the the danger is people try to find a city or a town and they, you know, I've, I, the best place to invest is Mildura, right? And then they go, that only is, even if that was the best place to invest, that's not enough information because in Mildura, you've got lots of different types of property. You've got houses, apartments, you know, townhouses, you know, studio, commercial, blah, blah, blah. And the houses could perform completely different to the, you know, apartments and they will and the townhouses. And then you go, well, what part of the housing market? Well, the new houses on the fringes in Mildura are probably aren't going to do that well because they're going to release lots of those. But maybe the best streets around the city centre, the older period homes or maybe the acreages, the five-acre blocks outside the city go up a lot, but the new houses don't. And so I think the problem is, you know, Mildura might have, Hopefully there's some listeners from Algeria here. <laughs> might have good wages growth. It might have great employment. Population growth might be good. Everything's going great. But that doesn't mean that the whole property market in that area is going to go up a lot. And then even in that sort of housing market, like Veronica said, like even in those good suburbs, the things that may be on the busier roads on that suburb may underperform the better streets. Well, most likely would. And mm. then the things with better lights or better floor plan or the bigger blocks versus the smaller blocks of houses on those streets. The high side of the road versus the low side of the road. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And so you, the challenge is that with this research, to get that granular, it's impossible. The reality is you've then got to go out and actually buy it. And that's the real skill is like, okay, well, let's go and find this asset. Let's go negotiate. Let's go price it up. Let's go to auctions and let's have the patience and commitment to do that for many months. And what we find is a lot of investors aren't willing to make that effort. You know, they just want to solve their investment property and get on with their life. And they spend not enough pain in the buy and they deal with the pain after when they mm. try to sell it and then they go, oh, that didn't work for me. I shouldn't have bought that investment property. And they never buy a property again. So deal with the pain, take time, get one quality asset and get into the where there's scarcity in whatever city you buy and where as higher income people and people doing well within that community are going to want to own and compete on. 
where there's only a few properties. Yeah. And ultimately, that's probably what's going to work. But that's also a timing issue. You can get lucky or you can potentially buy that property and nothing happens. But over the longer term, that's the stuff that will do better. But you still need time. You still need a bit of luck. I'd also invest research, which Veronica loves the report, the pain and gain report. Educate (laughs) yourself on what people do wrong in property. And if someone's selling a strategy to you, go and do your own research on how that actually works across different markets, different timeframes, and see how many people it doesn't work for. And if you find that information, then then run, obviously. (laughs) His fourth element of his question is how to best determine and interpret data online, that is, i.e. number of days on market, auction clearance rates, et cetera. He says he's very eager and exciting to begin his wealth creation journey and, and I just think it's wonderful that he is, which is great. So, But in terms of this this element to the question, uh, interpreting data online, days on market auction clearance rates, they are barometers of the current market. They're not necessarily an indicator of what's going to happen. So that to me, like days on market, that's the number of days it takes to sell property on average in, a, in an area. So, And once again, if you look on Kent's Suburb Trends website, we'll put the link in the show notes, you can find that out that information there. And he has a comparison for a year ago. So that well, really what that does is just gives you an idea of which direction the market's heading at the moment. Is it heading in buyer's market, seller's market? It doesn't really tell you whether you should be buying there or not. And the same with clearance rates. You know, clearance rates, uh, auction clearance rates are the proportion of property that's sold at or before auction versus passed in, right? So a clearance rate in the sort of 60 to 70 bracket, percentile bracket, that's seen as being a pretty balanced market. Anything under 60, looking at being a buyer's market. Anything over 70 is a seller's market. That's sort of the, the main way you look at it. But the thing is you need to look at the same data every time. I've been using in my business, we use domains data, and that's only because that's where I, what I first started using, you know, 15 years ago. And you can't chop a change because realestate.com that I use data on a Saturday is very different to, to domains. And if I'd started using real estate's data 15 years ago, I'd be using that, but it's the relativity that that matters. So I just sort of watch how it's bouncing around, you know, is it's, it, in fact, in Sydney, it dipped below 80%. So basically it was in the 80s, 80th percentile all year and it dipped into the 70s in May and, you know, first weekend of lockdown, the 26th of June, went back over 80%. <laughs> And that for me just says that's a hot market, you know, and it, it all it is, I know that anyway because I'm in it, but that just is just a measurement that verifies that, yes, we're in a hot market. So the clearance rates will just give you an ind- indication. So if you're starting to research an area that you're not familiar with and you look at the clearance rate, you go, okay, well, that's currently a pretty hot market or a cold market or whatever, That that's only today. It could go up next month, could go up or down, whatever, it, that is really a barometer of what's happening in the market. Yeah, I, I do think it's like Australia's greatest pastime is talking about property, right? And, you know, people like to throw these things around like, oh, did you see the clearance rate today? Or, you know, have you seen the days of market? And the news perpetuates it, right? Oh, the auction clearance rate today was, you know, 84%. And it's just, I mean, for me, it's a bit pointless, right? You know, yes, it helps you give an understanding that the market's things are selling, and if it gets over, say, you know, the 90% and, you know, you can see that that's maybe, okay, the desperation meters through the roof, everyone's just buying absolutely everything, no matter <laughs> if it's good or not. And usually at a good price because that's why it's selling. But as prices go up, vendors get a little bit more picky, you know, and so the clearance rate usually drops back down, which I think is what's happened. Things are still selling. 
You mean buyers get a bit more picky. So yeah, pro- that's true as well. There's that elasticity that happens. It's like, oh, overstretched buyers starts going, mm, that's a bit crazy. Yeah. So, yeah, it pulls yeah. back a little bit. So these things are just, you know, yes, they're you know good to know if you're buying in an area though. That's the thing. You know, like I, if you want to buy in whatever suburb, what's the auction clearance rate in that suburb? You know, how many properties have been on the market in that suburb in the last 12 months since over the last five years or even longer than that? You know, how, what are they roughly selling? Now, if they're selling, you know, in 20 days and there's only 50 properties on the market for that year, and there's usually 150. Well, it's a super tight market and things are selling fast and the auction clearance rate's 90%. You're going to have your, your work cut out, right? And um, it's going to be harder to buy than if it's those other statistics. There's a lot more properties on than general. They're taking a long time to sell. Auction clearance rate's really low. Well, then you don't be really questioning whether you should be buying there firstly. But if you are, then you're going to go on with a different strategy. You're not going to be as desperate as, say, those other markets. And so... Yep, definitely learn about these things and things like that. But you really only buy one property in one suburb on one street. And so those things are moving. You've got to focus on other fundamentals, I believe, than trying to look too much into those. I think what's important is there's no magic formula, you know, and and the thing is that days on markets, auction clearance rates, they don't actually give you any clue as to how good an area is. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's the important thing to understand. It all is mm. doing is telling you what buyers are doing at the moment. Yeah. How much stock is on versus how many buyers are around supply and demand, which is fundamentally really what drives the property market. Right. We've got a question here from Marianne, and she's suggesting that she'd like us to do a an episode on the Tasmanian property market, which we may or may not do. It's not in the wings, but maybe we could do one. But there was one thing that she actually raised that I thought was interesting. And she said that, you know, they bought and sold a lot of different properties only in New South Wales. And when they went down there, they're totally bamboozled by the way they do it. No auctions, even in a really hot market. Listing properties with a price and you're expected to put in your best offer. And then the agent sells it to the highest offer, but without coming back to you to give you the chance to increase your offer. And so it's sort of not exactly a question, but I'll sort of end it with a question is to say that really what is going on and what do you do when they, they an agent calls for a best and final offer? And one of the things, you know, in Home Buyer Academy, we have a whole element of the the course or a section of the course is really about teaching you how to understand what is going on before you even make an offer, you know. And one of the things that we teach is that you've got to find out the agent's process. You've got to find out what do they mean when they call best and finals. You know, will you shop that offer around? Because there's no actual, there are certainly ways that you'll find different areas behave, like we were talking about expressions of interest earlier, there's certain areas where that seems to be the modus operandi of the bulk of agents. And likewise, with this best and final offers, it's it's like a regional thing. You know, in that area, that's the way property is sold. But agents don't actually have any legislation around how to handle offers other than things like they have to submit it to the owner as soon as practicable and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How they actually negotiate and field those offers from one buyer to another is really up to that agent's practice. So it's very important to ask the question. So if someone is calling you for a best and final offer, I I will say, what does it mean? Are you giving me a deadline to present that offer to you with all the terms. Does that mean that you want that on a contract so that you can actually take that and seal the deal 
then and there. Will you come back to me and let me know if my offer is not enough or won't you? You know what I mean? These are questions to be asked beforehand rather than just sort of do what they say without actually digging further. And I think that's where a lot of buyers get unstuck because they they think the agent's going to come back to them, but that in some cases the agent will say, well, no, we are going to go with the best offer. That And, and we've got agents in our area that that are like that. And we know that. And so we have a conversation with our clients around, well, you don't get a second bite at this cherry. You have, you know, it's horrible. It's blind. You don't, you, you have to think about how much you want this property and actually go in with your best and final, which is awful. You'll never know the gap between you and the next person. You just never know, but you have to decide how much you want this property. And that's the conversation you have to have. If they're going to come back to you and shop it around, then of course you're not going to go with your best offer first up. You're going to hope that somebody doesn't come in and you're left with money in your pocket. But if they do come back to you, you can increase, you know, so it's a very different process. But asking that question of the agents at the outset is absolutely fundamental to getting it right. Yeah, it's such a nervy thing though, isn't it? You know, if you're trying to buy this property, you're in love with it and they say, oh, you know, just give us your best offer and you have no idea how many other buyers or mm. what they're going to willing to pay and, you know, depending on how desperate you are and how many properties you've missed out on, how much you love it and what you can borrow and with you stretching, you're already stretching yourself. It's such a nervy thing, isn't it? Just putting that offer down, putting that number down and just crossing your fingers with that no knowledge of whether you've just shot yourself in the foot. I guess it's it's when you're making that decision, I think you really just want to base it on the fundamentals, you know. How much does it suit you? How much does it suit your longer-term life? How much, how quality of an asset is it? How scarce is it? Are you willing to stretch for the right property? How long you've been looking for? All these sort of questions will give you that number to put down. But, you know, you may, you know, potentially be the only buyer, but if you focus on those fundamentals, it doesn't really matter as much as long as you, you know, you're happy with the outcome, I guess. Sort of interesting. I was having a conversation with a client the other day about them setting their their limit and, you know, we have a process, a thinking process, a framework we go through to help them, you know, work through that thinking process to get to that final number. And it was funny because one of the client's, you know, we're, we're preparing to go to auction and they sort of started talking about what other buyers might do. And I said, you know, it's really funny. I hadn't even occurred to me before, but our framework does not take into account other buyers. Other than when we research a property's price, we're looking at recent sales, that, that does take into account what other buyers have been prepared to pay in the past, right, for similar property. But I'm not going to sit here trying to tie myself in knots, trying to second guess what other buyers are going to do. You know, when I'm in an auction, I can see what other buyers are doing you know, and, and I will respond accordingly, but also I'm, I've got years of practice at this, but when we're actually setting a limit, we're not thinking about the tactics in what other buyers may or may not do. We're not trying to play games. We're focusing on buying this property and how important is it to us to buy this property and how upset we'll be if we miss out on it, how many other options are going to come up, likely to come up within a reasonable time frame that, you know, that makes our urgency on this one more or less. You know, all of those things are really important. They're the things to make your decision on what you're prepared to pay for a property, not, you know, trying to second guess what other buyers are going to do. Now, when if we're dealing with a sudden death situation such as the um the best and final offers and you not got you do not get a second opportunity then the first thing is to work out your walk away price before you think tactics 
And so it's the same as going to auction in this regard, that you really do need to know at what price will you kick yourself if another buyer does buy? It does mean putting it all on the table and it's horrible to feel like you have to do that, but there are some times when you have to. And what would be more horrible was if you kept 10 or 20 grand in the in the kitty in the bank and you would have paid it and then other, someone else does pay it and they get it and you don't get it, you know? So when we have that sort of that conversation, the client comes up with their work walk away price. I always say now we need to add an odd, odd number onto that because people think in round numbers. They do. They'll go in with, you know, my limit's 850,000 or 1.2 or whatever. They'll go in with round numbers. And I'm like, now just whack a seven on top. <laughs> because if it really comes down to why with two people on exactly the same number, your seven will buy you the property assuming that all the terms are favourable. And sometimes it is the terms as well that do change. And so it's always worth asking the agent, well, you know, what's the vendor's ideal settlement date, you know, or, or terms? And so it's asking those sorts of questions that can actually give your offer a slight edge. But fundamentally, to try to play games and second guess what other buyers are doing, you're going to fail, you know, and then 99% of the time you're going to be wrong because you actually don't know their circumstances. Yeah, I think your, your game in terms of throwing an odd number on top, you could probably argue you could double bluff that as well because, you know, if could other people be thinking the same thing, you know, and so you get one person willing to go for 1.207 and then you think, well, if we've got, then maybe they'll go to 1.208. So you can <laughs> kind of sort of then, you know, especially with a fine, you know, best and sort of final offer. Yep. You might want to go a little bit more than that, right? You might go one, two, twelve, or something like that. Just no, in case. no, no. But that's uh, what I'm saying is you only do that after you've worked out your walk away price. Yeah, and you just yeah, chuck an yeah, odd number on top of that, and, and, then, and then you're not going to yeah. agonise because if you're prepared to go to one, two, twelve, then then that wasn't your walk away price, you know. So yeah, then we have to start right. yeah. the, start the conversation all over again. Yeah, that's yeah, exactly. What's that uncomfortable? Happy you got it, but probably not happy with the price. And yes. unfortunately, that's generally what you probably will do. You know, mm. if you get a great property, great price, then you're probably more you know lucky rather than if you get a great property at a fair price or a price that you may be a little bit uncomfortable with, but you know it's a great property. That's probably still a great outcome because mm. you still got a great property. And so, don't be too concerned on the price within reason, but be absolutely concerned about the property you're purchasing. 100%. Uh, from Neil, I have a quick comment, not a question. After listening to our podcast regarding hiring a buyer's agent, he hired a buyer's agent to assist him in buying an apartment for a family relative to live in. Nice work, Neil. His reason for doing so was primarily to ensure due diligence, not actually recommending a property, which is sort of interesting because you know, if he's not sort of worried about the asset assessment, you know, he's got unique family requirements. Sometimes that's not sort of the primary driver. Mm. He was saying that the uh, the buyers had, had a lot of specialist contacts, ex- for example, analysis of body corporate minutes, building contracts, conveyancy, et cetera, and he was very happy with the result, which is a great, a good story. But I guess, uh, you know, there's a question sort of lying underneath this, I think, which is what due diligence would a buyer's agent do that Neil couldn't do himself or wouldn't do himself. And I think that that's something I, I actually put together like a, um, in my business, I actually put together a, uh, a graphic, which is a, an iceberg and it's got the tip of the iceberg, which is the typical things that a regular buyer would do. And then there's in the shallower water is what most buyers agents can do. And then we go down the depths of it, which is what we do, which is ridiculous. <laughs> and so, you know, what a typical buyer would do, we go and inspect a property you maybe once, usually, you know, usually twice, maybe only once, they go, okay, we need a contract or Section 32 if they're in Victoria or, or 
limited documents if you're in Queensland or whatever the jurisdiction you're you're buying in, you get that those documents from the agent. You then go to a conveyance or a lawyer and go, here, can you look at this contract for me, please? And they'll say, oh, you need to get a building and pest or you need to get a strata report, one or the other. And that's pretty much it. And most buyers think that they've done enough due diligence. And Going deeper than that, you need to look into a hell of a lot more. And the thing is that there are prescribed documents in every jurisdiction and there are some areas where there's quite a lot. So in, uh, say, New South Wales and Victoria, where the vendor has to provide certain documents and around zoning, the actual title search, so they actually show you actually what you're buying. There's a number of documents there. But there's a hell of a lot that are not essential documents, a survey, for instance, or if you've actually buying a property that's been renovated, there's only a very limited amount of documents that the vendor is required to provide. You need to ask for additional documentation. In Queensland, I'm mortified at how little disclosure the owners have to make. So to the point that a title search or a copy of the deposited plan, right, it's not even essential. They don't even have to provide that. It's you know, it's mind-boggling what is not vendor disclosure up in Queensland. And so buyers need to know what they don't know in order to actually make sure if they're going to make an offer that's conditional on things, that they put the right conditions in there, they make the right requisitions before they actually sign the dotted line. They need to get a lawyer or conveyancer that actually is good, specialises in property, is not, not one of those cut price conveyances. They need to actually make sure they're getting the support of the right advisors. Not all lawyers know enough about property to really advise you on everything that's missing in a strata report. Most lawyers don't even read the things. So as a buyer, when you're reading it, do you know what you're looking for? Do you know what's missing? You know, and so this is the type of buyer's agent that I encourage you look to use and, and hopefully this person's buyer's agent did all this stuff, is the one that's going to look at, you know, what is missing in that building? What about the local development? What could happen around that building that actually will devalue that building? You know, could there be loss of light, privacy, you know, noise, outlook. There's all these sorts of things that could happen outside the actual property you're buying that could impact on on your future enjoyment, also future value, and also your desire whether to buy the property or not. Within the complex, you know, what is their process for actually following up on building issues? You know, how, how robust is the Capital Works Fund? Are they, are they proactively managing this building or are they really lazy and you know, don't care. I mean, there's so many things to look into, you know, in, in certain areas, you look at flood zones, you look at bushfire zones, there's, there's a myriad of things that aren't necessarily required for the vendor to provide. And a good buyer's agent is going to be digging, digging, digging. And it, it, we can't find everything, let me tell you, but we can yeah. tell you what we can't find out as opposed to just not even looking. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point you said at the end because I was, it was on the tip of my tongue when you, whenever you stopped your uh, spiel. My um, rant. <laughs> yeah, is that I do think that's the key point. I do think that, yes, you should get a great buyer's agent and someone who's really going to care as much as you. But I ultimately think no one's going to have – they don't have to live in the property, right? They don't – and they're not going to want to get the benefits of how that property performs long term. And so no one's really ever going to – should care as much as you, the buyer. And so, yes, use buyer's agents to sort of do due diligence and things like that. I'm a little bit worried, Neil, and I'm not saying this is the case, but I'm a little bit worried that you went to a buyer's agent with validation and just went, oh, can I buy this property? And they said, 
yep, I'll go and do all these checks and charge you a fee. And you go, that's great. I got a service. I got validated. I'd also argue though, if you should be going to a buyer's agent for asset quality as well. And, you know, mm. that buyer's agent should be stopping you as a real trusted advisor would do and say, look, you know, is this really the right decision for you long-term? Yes, you might want to help your family, but can you help your family and still make a great lifestyle decision, long-term investment decision for yourself? That's what I, my brain sort of goes to. But I don't think you should ever really outsource everything. You know, buyer's agent, when they're, you're not their only customer. And the reality is good buyer's agents are busy. And yes, they can allocate a certain portion to do that due diligence, but there's a limit There's a, and there's only so many things that they can do. Yes, they might think that, so if there's anything that you think can change on that property or what things you're worried about, you've got to really sort of potentially go above and beyond, you know, ask the neighbours, get your health, you know, really call counsel yourself, you know, like go check the light, go and look at rat runs. And, you know, I do think you sort of really got to, get your hands in there and be thinking about these things because outsourcing anything in life, there's always risks and the risk really is that even though a buyer's agent's good, there's things that they may just not find because, you know, they haven't, you know, been able to do that digging because they haven't got that sort of time frame or they haven't thought about it, you know, because they just, they have missed something, you know, they just don't know about something in that suburb that they sh- potentially should, but they just don't know about it. And so just be very careful outsourcing absolutely anything to anyone. It's actually funny. I was just reflecting on a very recent purchase. Clients came to me somewhat similar, actually. They're looking to buy an investment property that is actually initially for elderly father to live in. And at first, you know, the important things such as no steps, you know, very easy access, you know, all single level, just a little bit of a shed out the back from the potter around it, et cetera, et cetera. All these sort of things that are quite unique to, not that unique, I guess, but, um, that needed to suit his requirements, number one. But I just said, well, what is your overall goal of buying this property? It was like, well, we want to look after dad now, but it's an investment. I said, okay, well, so we need to look for investment fundamentals. We can't just buy something that is all one level and has a shed just because of that. That's a short-term goal and I'm here to help you make sure that we achieve your long-term goals as well. And so they had come to me with, or us, Rachel initially spoke to them, with a property that they'd found and this house was, oh, we hated it on <laughs> immediately because it's a little house. It's all on one level, has a shed out the back shore and it's in a nice location, nice suburb, but it's not a nice street in this location. And this particular house is a very narrow single level terrace with only windows at the front and the back. So effectively living in a tunnel with a couple of skylights. And I just went, oh, that's awful, that house, you know. <laughs> and in terms of, you know, long term, what can you do to it? Any any extension is severely hamstrung by the narrowness of the block. It's it's severely hamstrung by the fact you're, you're a terrorist, so you're buttered between two other properties. You know, there's all these sort of really bad, bad issues with that property. And, you know, so we spoke to them about, that, you know, how important is that long-term? You know, if you really just want to buy for short-term, then then sure, we'll help you buy it. But if you are wanting this to be a good asset for you as a long-term uh, wealth creation vehicle, then then we were cautioning you not to buy that property. And they didn't go for it. They did listen to us, which was great. And, um, and I just bought a property for them, which is, yes, it did cost them more. There's no doubt about it. But I just said, it's such a cracker asset. Like it's really good property to own. And it will suit the dad in the short term, but it will absolutely suit their goals in the long term in a way that that other one would never even approximate, you know. And and it does come down to the ability to actually 
say to the client in the nicest possible way, but yep. that is not a good asset and this is why. And and I look, I bought another property on the weekend with clients that I said to them, I don't like this house. It's not a good house. I really don't want to buy it for you and I want you to understand exactly what it is that you're going into and understand all of all the, I know your pros because, you know, I know why you want to buy it, but I would need you to be really clear and understand all these these things that I think are wrong with the property. And if you still want to go for it, then great. Go for it with your eyes wide open. I don't want to be one of these buyer's agents that sort of goes, oh, okay, then if that's what you want, I'll help you. I'm doing what the client wants, you know. It's all very namby-pamby. I want to make sure that, you know, there's no mince words here. <laughs> they know what I feel about that property. They decided to go for it anyway, you know, and and I offered them many, many times to back out of it. They went for it. And I actually was happy for them when they bought it. It was um, remarkably a competitive auction. It really would never be in a, in a normal market, but they knew that. We went there, we bought it, and weirdly enough, there were three other buyer's agents there, and I was actually shocked because most properties I go for are really A-grade. This was not A-grade. I didn't really want to bid for it, right? But most properties I go for A-grade, I'm shocked that I'm not seeing buyer's agents more often at A-grade properties, and I was amazed to see three of them at this B-minus property. And I thought, what is that about? And and look, a bit mortifying because they look at me and go, well, you yeah. bid on it, you bought it, you know. <laughs> but uh, I just thought that was rather interesting that, you know, that what were they advising their clients in, in a hot market you need to go for crap? You know, it was, it was so, anyway, yes, I was there and I bid for it and when our clients bought it, I'm happy for them because I know that I pointed out all the things wrong with it and they still wanted to buy it and that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can sleep at night, Veronica, and you know that if you provide great advice over long terms, that sort of compounds, it gets out in communities, you get, and that's how uh, you built your business. And that's how, you know, you've got a great business because you've got clients who you know have done things that you really love and support and they'll refer to you because they know that you really care. And that's, that's ultimately uh, a good strategy for you as well. Thanks so much for doing all the questions and Ant sending them in. We love answering these. Probably do another one in a couple of months' time. So, questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au and yeah, we'll talk to you all soon. Please join us next week. We're having a bit of a chat, common theme I know, about sea change and tree change, but we're interviewing buyer's agent Matt Knight, who's a specialist in the south coast of New South Wales. There are principles that apply in any coastal or tree change area, and there's some very interesting discussion in there about what's driving people to move away from the cities, the areas that we could expect to have sustained price growth over time now, and those that are a lot more vulnerable. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.